Canon Press presents the weekly sermon from Christ Church, Moscow, Idaho. Copyright 2019. If you would like to find out more about Canon Press materials and products, please call 1-800-488-2034. For a complete list of our products or to order online, please visit our website at canonpress.com. Enjoy the sermon. And all God's people said, Amen. Let us worship the triune God. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And also to you. The Lord executes righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the children of Israel. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Almighty God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we rejoice in you. By faith, we enter into your gates with praise and your courts with thanksgiving. Our souls bless you, Lord, and all that is within us blesses your holy name. We will not forget all your benefits. You have forgiven us all our sins. You have healed us of so many sicknesses and diseases and infections. Your angels have guarded our path night and day so that our feet have not slipped. You have kept us safe in the water, on the road, in the air, and you have brought us home again and again and again. You have filled our mouths with good things, and you have crowned everything with your loving kindness and your tender mercies. You raise us up every morning with breath in our lungs and light in our eyes. You are slow to anger, you are patient with us, and you have extended your mercy from everlasting to everlasting, granting even your righteousness to our children's children. Bless the Lord, all you angels, all you hosts, all you ministers, all you mountains and rivers and seas, all of his works in all of his dominions. Bless the Lord. Praise the Lord. Amen. Amen. From time to time, you may hear Pastor Wilson or myself end our prayer of confession with words like, if we regard sin in our lives, this prayer will be ineffectual. What does it mean to regard sin? To regard sin is to respect sin. It means to let sin have some place in your heart or life. To regard sin is to make peace with sin. How do people do this? Sometimes people regard sin by saying it runs in the family. Some people regard sin by saying it's in their blood, in their biology, in their brain. They're genetically predisposed. Other people regard sin by saying they have never experienced the world differently. They have always been this way, felt this way. It feels natural. It's just who they are. It's their personality type. Or sometimes we regard sin in our lives because the sin we need to repent of seems to be a virtue. Ever since Adam, sin has come naturally. It has infected all that we are, and holiness does not come naturally to any son or daughter of Adam. It seems so unnatural. Unfortunately, many people mistake common grace for saving grace in all of this. Some people can be naturally friendly, organized, strong leaders, self-disciplined, hardworking, all by common grace, supplied by the remnants of the image of God and natural revelation. And these virtues are frequently the devil's strongholds, because who needs to repent of their good work ethic? 
But when someone becomes a Christian, the Holy Spirit invades a person's soul and topples the reign of sin and death entirely. We become new creations, new men, new women. But when Jesus makes us new, our natural gifts are revealed to be covered in the flesh rot of self-righteousness and pride. That we do have some goodness in ourselves after all. But when Christ comes to reign, he makes war on all our death deeds and especially the pride mold in our virtues. Jesus died and rose again so that we might be born again. And this means that everything must die first. This is necessary because we did inherit sin from our fathers, because of the sin in our blood, in our brains, because of the sin that comes so naturally, because of the leprosy that infects our virtues, because we have never actually experienced the world rightly until Christ makes us new. So as we prepare to confess our sins this morning, please turn to Chide Me, O Lord, No Longer, found on page 8. So as you're able, please kneel as we confess our sins together. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. Father, we confess that we have frequently regarded sin in our lives. We have made peace with sin. We have kept a special protected place for some sins. We have ignored them, excused them, explained them away, or even sometimes defended them as virtues. Or we have been unwilling to surrender true virtues infected with pride for fear that our pride would actually have to die. Father, we don't want to regard any sin in our lives. We confess that we need your merciful conviction to see these things clearly. So wherever we have regarded sin as something we can do nothing about, something that just comes naturally, something in our personality or family or biology, please forgive us and wash us clean. And forgive us for calling our sinful wrath righteous anger. Forgive us for calling our critical spirit just telling the truth. Forgive us for calling our cowardice kindness, or for calling our fear prudence, or calling our laziness patience. And Father, forgive us for our pride, for keeping some small part of our own goodness. Grant us the freedom to throw it all away. And so we confess our individual sins to you now. Selah. And so we ask all this in the strong name of Jesus, and amen. amen. Please rise for the assurance of pardon. Colossians 1 says, For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. If all things were created by him and he is before all things, then he is able to deal with all our sin. There's no sin so deep, so malignant that he cannot wash you clean and set you free. And so I declare to you that your sins are forgiven through Christ. Thanks be to God. Amen. 
The text this morning is Psalm 108. These are the words of God. O God, my heart is fixed. I will sing and give praise, even with my glory. Awake, psaltery and harp. I myself will awake early. I will praise thee, O Lord, among the people, and I will sing praises unto thee among the nations. For thy mercy is great above the heavens, and thy truth reacheth, reacheth unto the clouds. Be thou exalted, O God, above the heavens, and thy glory above all the earth, that thy beloved may be delivered. Save with thy right hand and answer me. God hath spoken in his holiness. I will rejoice. I will divide Shechem and meet out the valley of Succoth. Gilead is mine. Manasseh is mine. Ephraim also is the strength of mine head. Judah is my lawgiver. Moab is my washpot. Over Edom will I cast out my shoe. Over Philistia will I triumph. Who will bring me into the strong city? Who will lead me into Edom? Wilt, wilt not thou, O God, who has cast us off? And wilt not thou, O God, go forth with our hosts? Give us help from trouble, for vain is the help of man. Through God we shall do valiantly, for it is he that shall tread down our enemies. Our Father and God, we thank you for your kindness to us. We thank you for your word. I pray that as we turn to your word, your Holy Spirit would be present with us. And as he is present with us, I pray that he would work in our hearts. I pray that he would work in our hearts a willingness to receive and to do according to what you have promised, according to what you have set forth. And Father, we pray for all of this in Jesus' name. And amen. amen. So... In this text, we have a, an interesting juxtaposition at the, end of the, uh, at the end of the psalm, and the juxtaposition is between what God does and what man does, what God does and what man does. There's a true theological balancing act that uh, we have to do when we deal with these topics, and we're handling two very different sentiments, and both sentiments are found in Scripture. The first is the response of a humble servant of Christ. So likewise ye, when ye have done all those things which are commanded you, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done that which was our duty to do. That's in Luke 17, 10. So when we've done everything that Jesus told us to do, and in that passage, what he told us to do was to forgive somebody who wronged us grievously seven times in one day, and um, and Jesus said, forgive him. If he comes to you and seeks forgiveness, you forgive him. And of course, if someone sins against you seven times in one day, long about episode three or four, you would begin to suspect that they were not dealing with the root issues, right? They, they were apologizing for something they've done three times already that morning. And so when Jesus tells them to forgive this guy seven times in one day, they say, Lord, increase our faith. If you increase our faith, then we'll think about uh, doing what you said. And Jesus said, that's not how it works. You do what you're told. And when you've forgiven this guy seven times in one day, you're, you're, you are to say, we are unprofitable servants. We were only being obedient. We were only doing Christianity 101. We were only doing what God told us, to, what Jesus told us to do. That's Luke 17:10. We are to say that we are unprofitable servants. That's what we say. And when we do that, we are doing no more than what we are told to say. But what does the Lord say to us? We say that we are unprofitable servants, but what does the Lord say to us? 
His Lord said unto him, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. That's in Matthew 25, 21. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. We say we are only unprofitable servants. We don't say we are unprofitable servants. Now, you're, now it's your turn, right? We don't say to him that that's your cue. We say we're unprofitable, but we're only going through the motions. And now you say, well done, good and faithful servant, which is what we really think. No, God says what he says, and we're assigned to say what we are assigned to say. But there does appear to be a tension between the two. How do we resolve that tension? To paraphrase Spurgeon from a similar topic, we don't need to reconcile them, really. Why reconcile friends? These two sentiments where God says to us, well done, good and faithful servant, and we say to him, we were only doing what we were told to do, those are harmonized, and they're always harmonized as everything is harmonized in Christ. So let's consider this psalm verse by verse. First, the one who would worship God rightly should be settled in his intention. Oh God, my heart is fixed, the psalmist says. My heart is fixed. I will worship the Lord. I will praise the Lord. I will come before the Lord on the Lord's day. I will pour it all out before him. My heart is fixed on this. I am intent on this. The psalmist will sing and praise, and he will do so with his glory, it says. He will do so with his glory in the first verse, and the glory there is likely his tongue is likely his tongue. I'm going to praise God with my glory. The faculty of speech is something that God, um, it's not something that evolved. It is something that God bequeathed to us. God gave it to us. It is a creational feature, and it is the glory of man that he can speak. So, he will praise God with his glory. He wakes up his instruments in, in the morning in order to give himself to the task. He wakes himself up early to do it. Verse 2, so I wake up my instruments and I wake myself up so that I can praise the Lord and so I can start the day off by praising the Lord. He will praise God among the people. He will sing praises among the nations. Verse 3, God's mercy is great above the heavens. God's mercy is great above the heavens and his truth stacks up to the clouds. Verse 4, the exaltation that is rendered to God, therefore, ought to reach as high as his mercy and truth do, verse 5, which is above the heavens, which is above the earth. Why do we praise God to the heavens? Well, that's because that's how, that's how great his mercy is. That's how, how tall his, um, his truth and his mercy reach. The psalmist refers to himself here as God's beloved, and he asks God to save him with his right hand. Answer me, he says, verse 6. Answer me. God is holy, and he speaks in his holiness, verse 7. So you look at verse 6, you see that holy impatience, not, not unholy impatience, but the, the holy impatience that is so frequently found in the Psalms. God, what are you doing? God, where are you? I'm your servant. I'm your beloved. Why aren't you answering my prayer faster? Why aren't you coming to me faster? There's a holy impatience that, we, that is modeled for us in the Psalms. And when we're instructed, taught to sing the Psalms, we're being taught and instructed to sing and pray that way. Not with a grumbling impatience, but with a holy impatience. Answer me, verse 6. And then he says in the next breath, God is holy and he speaks in his holiness. Verse 7. 
Then David, as king, rejoices in what God has given to him. He rejoices in it. God has given him Shechem. God has given him the valley of Succoth in verse 7. Gilead and Manasseh are now his, verse 8. Ephraim is the strength of his head, verse 8. And Judah is his lawgiver, verse 8. Remember that the scepter will not depart from Judah. The, uh, Judah is the royal tribe. So Judah is his lawgiver, verse 8. We then come to an odd image of a wash pot and a thrown shoe. You may have noticed this before when you're doing your faithful Bible, Bible reading. Over Edom I will cast my shoe. What is that about? Well, I, I take it this way. Moab, Moab is an enemy of Israel. Edom was a, uh, although they were related, um, they were an enemy of Israel. Moab is the basin that some slave uses to wash David's feet. And Edom is another slave who is stooping on the floor. David, having taken his shoe off for the washing, throws his shoe over the slave, verse 9. So Moab is a wash basin. Edom, over Edom, I throw my shoe. It's like they're servants washing my feet. They're slaves washing my feet. I have triumphed over them. And then he says, Philistia has been defeated also. And David triumphs over Philistia in verse 9. So who's going to bring about this conquest of the strong city of Edom? So you see that David is speaking in faith here because over Edom I throw my shoe, but it apparently hasn't happened yet. So who's going to bring this about? Verse 10, God, is it not you? Are you not the one who's going to do this for us? You've cast us off before, he says, but not now, not this time. Will you not go out with your armies? Verse 11, will you not go out with your armies? God, give us help in our trouble, for the help of man is vain and empty. Verse 12, the help of man is vain and empty. Now, this is curious because he's saying, God, will you not go out with our armies? Well, what, what are these armies? They're made up of men. But I thought the help of men was vain and empty. What, what are you using men for if the help of men is vain and empty? This is the, this is the tension. God's, God's work in human history and our part in it. We are God's instruments, he says, and we shall do valiantly. We shall do valiantly. We shall do valiantly because we are not really the ones doing it. It is he that shall tread down our enemies, verse 13. So we are going to defeat our enemies, and we are going to do valiantly, and historians will be able to point to our behavior and our conduct in that battle and say, look at them, they did valiantly, and we know that it wasn't us at all. We know that God was the one treading down his enemies, verse 13. So here's the balance, here's the tension within this psalm. Give us help from trouble, for vain is the help of man, through God we shall do valiantly, for it is he that shall tread down our enemies. Notice how he is toggling back and forth. Men are useless, right? The help of the, the arm of the flesh is useless. The arm of the flesh shall do valiantly, for God is the one who equips the arm of the flesh such that it's not the arm of the flesh at all. David is looking for tangible help in a physical battle. He is looking for tangible help in a physical battle where men will die. There, there will be spears and arrows and there, there will be weapons of war in this battle. So he's looking for tangible help from God in this battle. How can he take this strong city in Edom? 
And so he asks for the help of God in this trouble because he's, as he says, the help of man is vain. The help of man is vain, vain, futile, worthless, inconsequential. The victory when it comes is through God. The victory is through God. David says that it is through God because he, God, is the one who's going to tread down the enemy. God is the one who's going to defeat the enemy, verse 13. But with all this said, David does not sit down on a sofa to watch the battle from afar. He doesn't sit down on the sofa to watch the battle because God's going to tread down the enemy. He does not expect God to smite the adversary with lightning bolts from the open sky. He says, through God, we shall do valiantly. Now, I, just a, a, a parenthetical comment. There are times, th this is a lesson that, that we desperately need to learn, that God is the one who does it. And so there have, there have been times in history where the armies of Israel just stood there and watched and God fought, God fought against them, whether it's the crossing of the Red Sea and the destruction of Pharaoh's armies by means of the, uh, of the miracle of the sea closing up again or the miracle of the sea opening up and then closing on Pharaoh's armies or the time when Jehoshaphat sends the choir out in advance of the army and they don't do any actual fighting. There are times when it appears that God says, look, stand back and watch this because you need to understand that, that I, I hold all power in heaven and on earth. But that's not how it happens most of the time. Most of the time, God uses instruments. God uses men who are doing things but God is the one doing it all the time. Sometimes God says to men, stand back and I will do it and you will see that I did it. Other times he says, I want you to do it and I want you to remember that when you are doing it, I am doing it. When you're doing it, you're not the one who makes it happen. In the Psalms also, if, if the Lord is not building the house, the one who builds it labors in vain. So you can have all the hammers and saws and wood and brick that you want. You, you can gather it all up. But unless the Lord is working through the instrumentality of the workers, nothing, it's not going to happen. It's not going to get done. So here is the back and forth. What is God doing? Everything. What are we doing? Everything. And we do everything while not trusting in our ability to do it at all. So, David does not sit down in some cushy spot in order to say, let's see what God does. He doesn't go off to the side, sit down and say, let's see what God does. He pulls his sword from his scabbard and says, let's see what God does. All right, he goes into battle and goes into battle saying, let's see what the Lord does. Let's see how the Lord accomplishes something, how the Lord treads down our enemies using us. And we know that if he departed, we wouldn't be able to do any of this. So how do we relate the action of God to the actions of men? How do we relate the action of God, which superintends all things, with the actions of men? What is the relationship between the sovereignty of God and the free choices, the free decisions of men and women? Now, this is a, this is a perennial uh, question in the church. It's, it shows up in the New Testament. It shows up in the battle between Augustine and Pelagius. It was a big issue in the Reformation. Um, if you want a shorthand illustration of Pelagianism through Calvinism, Pelagian, Pelagians think that God drops a rope down from heaven and we shinny up the rope. That's how we get to heaven, is God drops a rope and we climb the rope. 
our, our, our Armenian brothers believe that God drops a rope down and we hang on and God pulls the rope up while we're hanging on. Calvinists believe that God drops a rope, ties us off and hauls us up. And the stricter Calvinists believe that God ties the rope around our necks and holds. <laughs> yes, I'm taking you to heaven, but you can't have any fun while you're coming. Uh, well, uh, you might say, well, that, are those my choices? Are those my choices? Well, uh, um, actually, no. And the, what, we, what we don't understand is that God's relationship to human history is not the relationship of uh, a muscle-bound Zeus. It's not as though God is contained by the cosmos and we're all the little critters in the cosmos and God is the biggest, strongest, most intelligent being within this cosmos. Because if, if God were a muscle-bound Zeus within the system, whenever he made somebody do something, whenever he worked through someone, that person's free agency is being displaced. If one of you, if a big, uh, uh, if one of the uh, bigger kids walked over to a little kid and pushed him over, the action of the bigger kid displaces the, the free will of the little kid. You can't act without that kind of displacement. It's like one billiard ball displaces another. God's relationship to the world, God's relationship to history is not like that. God's relationship to the world is not like that. It is more like the relationship of Shakespeare to his play. So when Hamlet's reciting to be or not to be, is that 100% Hamlet and zero Shakespeare? Or is that 100% Shakespeare, zero Hamlet? No, it's 100% Shakespeare, 100% Hamlet at different levels in different relationships. You might say, but I don't understand that. I can't do the math on that. Well, nobody asked you to do the math on that. Of course we can't do the math on that. Do you believe that God became man in Jesus Christ? Do you believe that the infinite God was lying in a manger the first Christmas? Yeah, do the math. Well, I can't do the math, it was a miracle. Right, exactly, right? Do you believe that God spoke and there Jupiter was? God spoke and there the galaxies were? Yes, I believe that. Do you believe that God created everything out of nothing? Yes, I believe that. Do the math. I can't do the, I can't do the math. I'm, I'm a religious man, I'm a man of faith, I'm a woman of faith. I'm not trying to tell God how to do these things. It's our responsibility to look at scripture and see what he has done. We, we have, have no responsibility at all to figure out the mechanics or how he does it. We know that we are free and responsible beings. We know that we are responsible for our choices. We know that we ought to be trusting God as opposed to not trusting God. And we know that God is the one who does it all. All right, so how do, we, how do we put all those things together? That's what I think we see in this psalm. God is always God, absolute and sovereign, and man is always man, finite and limited, but truly free. God is always God, so exhaustively sovereign, and man is always man, finite and limited and genuinely free. You are not a puppet.
Right? You are not a puppet. You're responsible for your decisions. You make choices. You make decisions. And God is going to bring every man under uh, judgment for the words that he says. We're all going to appear before Christ, Paul says. We, we give an account of ourselves. Our choices are not irrelevant. We're not, God's not the giant puppet master in the sky. That's simply a, a caricature. It's not what we believe. You must not believe it. It's not in Scripture. Scripture teaches the free agency, moral agency of men and women. You are responsible for what you do, and your responsibility for what you do does not at all put God out of control. It does not at all remove God from his position as God. So God is God, man is man. God is God, man created in the image of God is man, and he's not a puppet, he's not an automaton, he's not a robot. God is God, and man is man, and nobody can do the math. We're not supposed to do the math. So we need not concern ourselves. We need not concern ourselves with God's sovereignty over inanimate objects. That presents no difficulty at all, right? God is uh, the moon rocks on the dark side of the moon are right where God put them and they stay there and nobody's troubled by God's superintendency over these moon rocks. Nobody cares. No difficulty at all. The challenge for us is when we are dealing with beings who have free agency. They are not puppets, and yet God directs them perfectly as well. God directs perfectly free agents. Sentient creatures who make choices, sentient creatures who make choices are divided into two categories. Rebels on the one hand, and sons and daughters on the other. Rebels on the one hand, people who are fighting God's uh, determinations, who are against him, who want to overthrow him. Rebels on the one hand, and sons and daughters on the other. The rebels choose wickedly, and they are responsible and accountable for their choices. They choose wickedly, but their choices, the consequence of their choices, are overridden by God such that they accomplish the opposite of what was intended. They intended to do God in. They intended to kill the Messiah. And their plot worked perfectly, except until when Jesus came back from the dead. Everything, everything went smoothly until Jesus wrecked it all by rising from the dead. Remember Herod, Pontius Pilate, and all the Jews in Acts 4, 27 through 28, they, did, they only did what God's purpose and will determined beforehand should happen. So God, they, they thought they would get rid of Jesus, they would get rid of this troublesome prophet, and yet God overrode what they did Accomplishing what? The salvation of the world. Caiaphas had no intention at all of, of being the instrument for saving the world. Judas was not trying to save the world. The devil was not trying to save the world. But they all did. If the rulers of this age, it says in 1 Corinthians 2.8, if the rulers of this age had known what the crucifixion would accomplish, they would not have engineered it. They all had true freedom. Caiaphas, Herod, Pontius Pilate, all the Jews, all of them had true freedom. They're responsible for their choices. What they didn't have was the freedom to win. What they didn't have was the freedom to be smarter than God. What they didn't have was the freedom to be wiser than God. They had the freedom to choose what they wanted to accomplish and to embrace what they wanted to accomplish. They had the freedom to attempt what they attempted. They did not have the freedom to win. That's, the, that's, what, that's how rebels are relegated. 
Rebels are relegated to the position of being tools in the hand of God. God accomplishes what he intends to accomplish, and the people who rebel against him are simply helping him to accomplish his purpose, a purpose that they do not understand. So, so much for rebels. But you're not in that position. You want to be sons and daughters. You don't want to be relegated with the rebels, right? Sons and daughters lay down their arms and surrender to him. In the course of his kindness to him, he gives them everything. But what he gives on the basis of our new justified status, he gives into us. What God gives us when we repent and believe, when we lay down our arms, when we say, God, have your way with me, I will believe what the word says to believe, I will do what the word says to do, I will be a faithful Christian, I will take your name on, on me in baptism, and I will be a disciple of Jesus Christ, and I will follow him to the end of the world. That's what a Christian is. I will follow him, I'll take up my cross. If you say, take up your cross, I'll take it up. If you say, do this, I'll do it. You say, believe this, I'll believe it. I'm not gonna have my thumb on anything saying, except for that, and except for that, and except for that. I, I, I'm, a, uh, I'm under authority. I submit to that authority. And then when we submit to that authority, when God gives us repentance and when God gives us faith, and we come to that, that moment of conversion and we surrender, what happens? God begins to work his grace into us. God takes away a heart of stone. He gives us a heart of flesh. He begin His Spirit takes up residence in us. Christ is in you, the hope of glory. Something marvelous begins to happen within. Something marvelous begins to happen within. What happens first is that God declares you, that you have a new status. You are declared not guilty. That's your justification. And then God begins to work changes in you that are your sanctification. So God works these things into you. He works grace and peace into you. He works his mercy into you. He works kindness into you. Uh, the fruit of the Spirit, it says in Galatians, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. The fruit of the Spirit means that you're growing things on your branches that you didn't used to grow. And that's because God has worked a new principle inside you. And this is the key. What God gives to us in the course of our sanctification, he gives, he doesn't give to us, he gives into us. God gives into us. And then we work it out. So let's consider that. Colossians 1, first. Colossians 1, 27 through 29. To whom God would make it known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you. Notice, notice what was given into you. Christ was given into you. Which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, whom we preach warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Whereunto I also labor, striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. What does Paul say, to put Paul's statement here into the language of the psalmist, Paul does valiantly, right? To this end I labor. To this end, I, who's laboring here? Who's working here? If, some, if, if Paul's next door neighbor were to ask, how busy is that guy? 
Well, he's really busy. He gets up early, he goes to sleep late, he's teaching, he's instructing, he goes house to house, he's working on the side to pay the bills as a tent maker. He's industrious. Paul says, to this end I labor. And, but what is it that's going on? Striving according to his working. I labor his working, which worketh in me mightily. So this is the process. God works into the apostle mightily. He works into him mightily. And we see up above, what is the source of that might? It's Christ, the hope of glory. Christ was given into Paul. The hope of glory was given into him. He has Christ within him. And so that Christ is working within him mightily, and then he works it out. We have the same thing in Philippians 2. 20, uh, 12 and 13. Wherefore, my beloved, so in Colossians, Paul is describing what's happening with him. In Philippians, he's telling the Philippians to basically do the same thing. And what is that? Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, if we put, if we, uh, just put a full stop there, and we said, and you put a plaque on the wall, work out your own salvation, period. All right, that's Pelagianism. That's shinny up the rope, right? That, that is do it all yourself. If you want to go to heaven, you better pedal harder. If you want to go to heaven, you better work harder. But it's not Pelagian at all. He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why do you work this out? For it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. You work out what God works in. You work out what God works in. And if he's not working it in, you can't work it out. You can't, you can't haul up water from dry wells. You can't, if, 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 if you're a dry well, you can't say, if God can't, uh, a preacher can't say, produce water, lots of fresh spring water. Lots of fresh well water. No, you can't. If the water's not there, you can't. You can't. God has got to do something in you. God has got to do something in you. God is, it is God who works in you, both the will and to do of his good pleasure. And so your good pleasure should be to work out what he works in. That's your good pleasure. Your good pleasure, Jesus says somewhere that he only does what he sees his father doing. Jesus imitates the father. He only sees what he sees his father doing. Your Christian life could, should consist of doing what God is doing. Doing what God is doing in you, you want to make that visible. You don't want, if, if you make it visible, if you quote a Bible verse or you read your Bible or you go to church or you sing in the choir, you do those, you do those sorts of outward things, and they're not things that God is working in, you're working it out. You're not imitating the Father. You're not imitating Christ. You're not following Christ. That's what hypocrisy is. If you're presenting to the world a Christian life, but there's no working in, it's just you working out, it's a facade. It's a charade. It's, an, it's a false image. You want to be looking for what God is up to. And the, you say, well, can I, how can I look into my own heart and see what God is up to? Well, let me caution you, especially you introspective types. Do not look inside by looking inside. Do not look inside by unbuttoning your shirt and, and looking into your heart saying, golly, I wonder what God's doing down there. The only way you can see what God is doing in here is by holding up a mirror. 
You hold, you hold up the mirror of God's word. You see yourself in God's word, as James tells us. The mirror shows us, if God says, do you want to know what's going on in your heart? Do you want to know what I'm doing in there? Do you want to know what I'm working into you? Hold up the word. Be in the word. Feast on the word. Devour the word. Be hungry for the word. Hold it up and say, what is God up to? That's the only way you're going to see inside accurately. And when you, when you look at the word and you see what God, God has promised, what God is doing, what God is up to, you see that and you work it out. And you say, oh, and then it flows. So shall we, like David, do valiantly? Yes, we shall. But that valiant spirit has to be given to us first. And when I say, I want to, I, I keep saying given into us because I want you to understand that Christ is not given into your hands in such a way that you, you might drop him. If, God is, if Christ is just given to you in that way, if Christ were simply a possession of yours, like your car keys or your phone, you might misplace it. If Christ, if Christ were your possession in that sense, then you're fully capable of losing him. And on top of that, not only are you capable of losing him, you would, right? If, if you could lose Christ, you would lose Christ. But if Christ is given into you, if Christ is given into you, if you're regenerate, if you're born again, if you're converted to God, if that has happened, there is absolutely no way that you can lose Christ because Christ is in you the hope of glory, as he says in Colossians. Christ is your possession. It's not... He's not a possession of yours like car keys. You're a possession of his. And what Christ possesses, Christ does not lose. So, shall we do valiantly? There are a number of you who have, well, all of us have enormous challenges before us. All of us do. Some of us see them. Some of us recognize how big the challenges are. Some of us don't can't hear the challenge because it's walking up behind us. It's going to appear next week or it's going to appear in a couple of months. All of us have monumental things to do. All of us have things to do that are bigger than we are. Everybody here has challenges that are bigger than you, that are stronger than you, that are smarter than you, that are trickier than you. All of you have those challenges. Shall you do valiantly? Yes, we shall do valiantly because God is the one who treads down our enemies. We shall do valiantly. That, that enemy that you might, that Edom that you want to throw your shoe over, and you can practice at home if you want. Right? Sit on your bed, throw your boot over your Edom. Your Edom might be a besetting sin. Your Edom might be a tangled and difficult relationship. Your Edom might be your marriage. Your Edom might be your relationship with a wayward child. Your Edom might be an unreasonable boss. Your, your Edom might be financial troubles. What is your responsibility in that challenge? What is your responsibility? It is to trust God and do valiantly. That is your responsibility. Your, whatever it is, health challenge, life challenge, financial challenge, relationship challenge, whatever it is, your God treads down your enemies. Your God is the one who's given you this psalm so that you can ask God to take the, these words and work them in so that they may be your eternal possession. 
And when they're your eternal possession, then you thank him and you work it out. And you can work it out with thanksgiving. You can say, in effect, before God has given you Edom, you can thank him for having done so. Our Father, God, we thank you for your kindness to us. We thank you for the, uh, these words. We thank you for the encouragement they provide. I pray you'd help us to understand them. I pray you'd help us to, to grapple with them rightly. And I pray that you'd be with everyone here who has got the, whatever challenge they have. I pray that you'd help us all see what you've given to us and see them by faith. And I pray that we would, in fact, do valiantly. You've been urged this morning to throw your shoes over whatever it is, right? You're supposed to throw your shoe over your sandal over Edom. He, he says, whatever your, whatever your trouble is, whatever your Edom is, uh, and you're supposed to throw your shoe there. And he said, you could practice. Um, and, and here's what I think you should do, rather than throwing shoes. You can throw shoes if you want, but I want you to give thanks for whatever your Edom is. So the charge this morning is to go out of here, whatever the Edom was. The Edom is your marriage, your children, uh, uh, the, the difficulty at work, the finances, the sickness, whatever the Edom is. The, the charge is give thanks to God that he has already prepared the victory for you in it. We are more than conquerors, Paul says, in all these things. So this is not a name and claim it. This is a do you believe it? Do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe that he rose from the dead? Do you believe that he has already triumphed so that you might do valiantly? So give thanks for, for it. Give thanks for it now and then watch him work. Receive now with believing hearts the blessing of your God, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all and remain with you always. And amen. Amen.